With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and, and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. David Rubenstein is a man that wears many hats. First off, he's a multi-multi-billionaire and an incredible philanthropist. He's donated to so many different organizations. It's hard to describe them all. But he's the head of the Carlyle Group, which is a private equity group that has like around a half a trillion dollars. I don't even know how much. But the subject of this podcast is his book, The American Experiment. He interviewed everybody from great historians to Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor uh, to athletes like Billie Jean King to former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright to documentarian Ken Burns to historian Walter Isaacson. Every single chapter in this book, and there's chapters about the Civil War, chapters about Native American history, chapters about the presidential election of 2020. I learned something in every single chapter. Plus, we spend a lot of time talking about giving the lessons from history, what is going to happen in the future with all this money stimulus printing and uh, COVID and the recent events in Afghanistan. Not only is David, of course, a historian, but he has so much influence on the financial system. It's really fascinating to hear his answers. So uh, this is divided into parts one and part two, both parts on the same day. Enjoy. David, when I read this book, almost every single chapter, I learned things that surprised me about American history and the American experience. And, and, and also you're a great interviewer. You could tell you're not just, you're not just trying to get information from the people you're interviewing. You're learning things as well. You're curious and you're learning things from your, uh, interviewees about American history, the American experience and so on. What were some of the things that you surprisingly learned that surprised you? I was surprised at uh, the fact that so many people in our country have uh, struggled so long to get certain rights that were promised in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And despite the fact that we've had these long struggles and stress tests that I've called, the most recent of which was, of course, the election and uh, the pandemic, but the greatest of them was the Civil War, the country is still uh, filled with people who are optimistic about the future. People are not leaving the country because they're disappointed in the country. In fact, 
uh, people are generally pretty happy with the country, though they recognize that we have challenges. So the country is one which has suffered a lot in the last 230 years, but every country has suffered. People here are resilient. They've come back. They recognize we have flaws, but I think generally people feel that we're in the right direction and heading uh, to a better place than we are right now. Well, where, where do you think the, I mean, you, you talk about the suffering of Native Americans and of course the suffering caused by slavery, suffering in our various wars. Where do you see the suffering happening right now and, and room for improvement? Well, today we have, I'd say, three problems that I think where there's a fair amount of suffering. And um, as we talk, um, one of my nemesis is coming. Uh, you may hear it. Um, I've written in articles about uh, things called um, leaf blowers. Um, a leaf blower is some invention somebody has, which apparently moves leaves from one part of a lawn to another. And for some reason, people have an obsession with moving leaves around. And apparently the muffler has not yet been invented for the leaf blower. So um, I have some leaf blower outside and I, I think he's uh, determined to make as much noise as possible. But anyway. Well, well, why don't you invest in a muffler for leaf blowers? I, that is something I've thought about. In fact, when I've complained about this before, I've gotten dozens of people sending me leaf blowers saying that their version is quieter than the ones I'm normally used listening to. But I, I am amazed at how civilization's gone forward with several thousand years and only recently have we noticed that we needed leaf blowers to make sure we're sure that civilization would progress further. But okay, in any event, you may hear a leaf blower who's no doubt trying to maximize the amount of noise he makes. In any event, uh, to answer your question, right now, the biggest challenges that this country has are the dysfunction of the government and the distrust of the government by so many people. Number two, the income inequality and the lack of social mobility that is increasing. And three, the overall, um, I would say, uh, inability of the country to um, deal with its uh, debt and financial issues, which I think at some point are going to come back and give us very, very big problems. And we have enormous amounts of financial debt, as you know, in the country. So I think those are three of the problems that I uh, think are particular to this country. Clearly, the global climate change issue is particular to every country, not just this country. And so, you know, it's interesting about the debt. Obviously, increased huge during COVID and the various bailouts and stimulus programs. You're very much in tune with the financial situation through the Carlyle Group. Uh, and yet, when I talk to others, whether it's members of the Federal Reserve or economists, there's also enormous deflationary pressures on the dollar, the demand for the dollar around the world, the efficiencies of, of technology, particularly the internet. Where, where do you see things going uh, uh, three, four steps ahead with, with what's been happening? Well, cur currently we can afford the debt because interest rates are very low. When we uh, return to a more normal interest rate environment, the debt of the United States government is gonna be quite significant. And at some point, if we keep running three and a half trillion dollar annual deficits, we're just not gonna be able to easily afford everything we wanna do in our budget, including paying the interest. It's not a problem until it's a problem. As you know, uh, all of a sudden, something that seems apparent to people today, um, nobody cares about it. And then all of a sudden, when people get nervous about it, and people will say, how could we have not known that? For example, take the, uh, the debt we have today. Right now, people on Wall Street do not seem particularly worried about it. People in Washington are not worried about it. But at some point, I suspect when interest rates begin to go up again, 
people will start focusing on the fact that we're paying so much money in interest that we just can't keep doing this forever without cutting back on some of the spending we already have. So it is a challenge um, in, in my view. I recognize that right now, everybody in Washington, everybody in New York is kind of focused on other things, but it is a big problem. What's a worst case scenario and what's a best case scenario? Like how do we, how do we get out of this okay? There are five ways you can solve this debt problem. Number one, we can default on the debt and say, well, guess what? We didn't really mean this debt. We weren't gonna pay it back. That's not a good solution. Two, you can inflate your way out of it. Uh, when I worked in the government under Jimmy Carter, we had high inflation. That's not a good solution, but that's one way you get out of a debt problem. A third way is we go to the, the IMF for a bailout, but the IMF can't afford to bail us out. So that's not a good solution. So you're really down to tax increases or spending cuts. Now, of course, economic growth can solve a lot of problems, but an economy of our size is not probably going to grow sustained basis for five, six percent a year. Maybe we can do it for a couple quarters or so. But generally, I think we're, we're kind of going to be having around two to three percent growth. At that growth rate, you've either got to cut um, expenses or, or increase taxes. There's no other way around it. And right now, there's no interest in Washington in, in really making major spending cuts. And I don't think there's a great interest in, in tax increases, but there probably will be some coming along. And this starts to segue in, into your book and the and American history and the American experiment. I don't know of any recent president that has been able to cut spending. Who do you think is the best president in the past 200 years that did successfully trim government or cut spending? Well, nobody has been able to, to really say no to spending, but I would point out that while you would not associate him with being a spending cutter, perhaps, under President Clinton, we did balance the budget several times. Now, obviously, there was Graham, Rudman, Hollings, which put in, um, a mechanism in to kind of keep the spending at a certain level. But unless you have some kind of mechanism and you keep up with that mechanism and maintain it, in the end, spending is going to be, you know, um, somewhat out of control. And we're not willing to cut to, to uh, raise taxes uh, to a level to, that will deal with the, 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 uh, the spending we have. So I would think about it right now. Right now in the last year's budget, we basically borrowed half the money we spent. That's not a prescription for economic uh, success on the long term. You just can't keep borrowing forever. And, and, and again, I wanna get to your book, but how are you as a major investor, how are you positioning yourself for what could be happening in the future? Well, I am worried about it. I can't tell you I have a brilliant solution. You know, of course, it's easy to say, well, when, when uh, somebody wakes up and recognizes we have this problem, what are gonna be the consequences? Well, lower GDP growth, which would mean the stock market probably will go down. Uh, the value of the dollar will probably go down. Um, the value of other currencies obviously will go up. The value of gold and other kinds of uh, hard commodities like that will probably go up. So if I were a macroeconomic trader, which I can't say that I am, I would say the things that one would do if you're worried about this would be to kind of uh, uh, take bets against uh, the currency and bets uh, in favor of uh, hard commodities like uh, gold and also bet against the stock market. Now, I don't recommend people do that now because I'm not wise enough to figure out when this is gonna occur, but at some point, I suspect you'll have some economic slowdown and some real concern about the debt and deficit much more than we have today. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb 
has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But 
Now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H I M S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Getting to the book. Every chapter gave me pause. There was things to think about. In your chapter about Frederick Douglass, Douglas called Lincoln one of the biggest slave catchers around. This was a surprise to me. And he also mentions that the Civil War did not initially start as a war against slavery, which is against everything I learned, of course, growing up. Well, the Civil War was started in part because Abraham Lincoln uh, was in favor of not extending slavery into new states, though he did not intend ever to end slavery in the existing states. And in fact, it's hard to believe this in hindsight, but there was something called the 13th Amendment, which uh, was designed by um, James Buchanan, Lincoln's predecessor. And that 13th Amendment was designed to say, slavery is part of the law of the land and will not be changed. In his inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln endorsed that. He endorsed the idea that slavery was part of the Constitution. His concern was extending it to new states, not existing states. So when Lincoln got elected, people didn't really believe him, or at least people in the South didn't believe him. He got very few votes at all in the South. People believed that he was going to not only stop the extension of slavery, but to get rid of it in the South where it, where it had been protected by the Constitution. So states began to secede. Lincoln uh, wanted to keep the, the country together, and so he was. his effort was to kind of keep the country together. But in the end, as he pointed out in his Gettysburg Address, what the main purpose of his real effort was, in the end, was to end slavery. And he didn't propose ending it initially because he didn't think he had the right to do so. He ultimately issued the Emancipation Proclamation because he thought as a war measure, it would help him win the war if he freed the slaves and they would then fight against the South, among other things. But in the end, uh, he became known as the great liberator. But in fact, he had not gone into the Civil War trying to liberate the, the slaves. It ultimately turned out to be the only way he thought he could win the war. I mean, Lincoln is held up almost in this mythological way as, you know, again, 
the president that freed the slaves and that it was his vision from the, from the beginning, as you suggest, he might've suggested, but what, what do you think makes truly made Lincoln the great president he was? Well, Lincoln had many great features and I think he was the greatest American of them all and the greatest uh, president of them all. He wasn't a perfect person for sure. Um, he made jokes that today would be inappropriate. Uh, he was not really an abolitionist at all. He moved very slow, slowly to get rid of slavery, and he only did it as a wartime measure, really. But the reason he's considered so great, and the reason I think he's so great, is one, he held the union together. If you take the view that the United States is better off as a country united uh, than divided, uh, he ensured that it would have stayed uh, united. I think many other people elected at the time Lincoln was elected, had they faced with the South seceding, would have said, okay, go your separate way and we'll go our way. Lincoln didn't do that, so he kept the country together. Two, he ultimately came by um, circuitous routes to ending slavery, so that was a plus. Three, he was martyred at the at, at as a young age, and you know when you're assassinated, you tend to you tend to uh, take on mythic uh, mythic uh, you know uh, kind of image, and I think you know basically uh, that probably helped deify him a bit, unfortunately. Um, so I think. His, he will go down in history as the greatest president and greatest American because he kept the country together and he ended our greatest um, birth defect, which was slavery. Now, when you say he kept the country together, earlier on in the chapter on the Declaration of Independence, you quote the Declaration of Independence and you say, um, you know, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish the government and to institute a new government. Yes. Uh, and the South was basically saying at the time of the Civil War that they were ready to do that. So, so where's the line where a president should say, okay, go your way, or the president should say, no, we're staying as one government, as, as, as dictated by the Declaration of Independence? Okay, there are two different things. In the Declaration of Independence, we didn't have a, um, a constitution that we had agreed to with, uh, with, with England each state, each colony had its own charter, and we did have, through the rhetoric of Thomas Jefferson, the idea that when you when you aren't being treated appropriately, you have the right to break away. The Constitution was an organic document that all the states in the Union had agreed to, and it was different than what we did with England. But I obviously can see um, the um, the point you're, you're you're making, which is that uh, the Americans broke away from the British. Why couldn't the Southerners break away from the Northerners? Uh, well, under the Constitution, there was no provision to secede. Now, I guess you could argue they had the right to do it, but um, I think the country was better off being held together. Now, had the, Obviously, yes. had the South seceded, succeeded in what it did, I suspect at some point the South would have reunited with the United States, with the northern states, but there aren't many people who take the view that the South might have um, affiliated with some foreign government Maybe it would have affiliated with uh, the French. Maybe it would have become part of some other country. You just don't know. But in the end, I think uh, this country today is the strongest country politically, militarily, economically in the world, in part because we have all the, the states together in, in one union. Right. And I, I, I agree. I was just curious on, on your answer to that. You know, in your introduction, it, it's really great how you, you break apart the 13, what you call genes right. of the American DNA, you know, things like democracy, capitalism, freedom of speech, 
Uh, I want to talk about some of these things in relationship to some of your interviews. You interview uh, former Washington Post publisher Donald Graham about freedom of speech. And this has become a big issue in the past year, particularly since so much communication has happened over social media. And companies like Twitter and Facebook argue that freedom of speech doesn't apply to them because they're private corporations. Again, where where's the line where freedom of speech does apply and doesn't apply, and where should it be? Well, of course, that's a complicated question, but the First Amendment to our Constitution says the government shall not abridge fee, uh, speech. It doesn't say that private corporations can't abridge spe uh, free uh, speech. So clearly, um, a private company can do what it wants within reason of not breaking other laws. Uh, it's different than when the government tries to prohibit speech. Right, but when a, when a private company takes on some of the features of being part of the government, it's, it's kind of a hazy area. So Jack Dorsey himself, the CEO of Twitter has said that Twitter is a form of a public square, almost like a government run area. Does social media have too much control over our speech? Well, there's no doubt that, um, the social media vehicles like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or, or other kinds of devices like that have become so important in our society, they're almost like a government utility or a utility sanctioned by government. Um, the reason that the Pentagon Papers case came out the way it did was it went to the Supreme Court. Um, in the end, if uh, President Trump's uh, being prohibited from going on Twitter or Facebook were to go to the Supreme Court, you might get some resolution that would be more than just uh, Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg saying they shouldn't go on the uh, on their on their vehicles, but for the time being, it is a tricky area. I think it's going to have to ultimately be litigated, and I I don't know how it will come out, but for sure, uh, it, it is different when the government prohibits something from being said than where a company prohibits it. But your point is, which is well taken, then you become as powerful as Twitter or Facebook. You're in effect a semi-government, and therefore you're acting like a government in many ways, but you are. Uh, acting like a private vehicle when you want to be acting like a private vehicle. And and again, I asked the question, not really in reference to, to President Trump, but just, you know, there were many things, you know, discussions about COVID or discussions about war. There were a lot of things that it seemed arbitrary what was allowed and what wasn't. And, you know, since that was when everyone was working remote, that was the main way people communicated. So yeah, it's I mean, an interesting uh, question. Look, there's no doubt that uh, the the antitrust laws probably weren't set up for things like Facebook or Twitter, where you're not really paying something, you're getting a service for free, you could argue, and it's not the same as you're buying something and there's some anti-competitive price that you're, you're paying. But I don't know that our antitrust laws were set up to kind of deal with these kind of situations, and maybe they'll have to be adjusted at some point. But for currently, um, I, I think it's fair to say that that uh, these private companies have a, a disproportionate amount of influence. When you think about it, you've got five or six companies which are quite successful companies and have a lot of influence in our lives. Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Netflix, Google, Amazon. Think how powerful these companies are and you know, think about what you do every day in your own daily life or my only daily life. If you couldn't exercise the right to buy or use any of the services any of these companies just, I just mentioned, um, are provided, 
what would you do? Would you, how would your life be able to be uh, normal or functioning? The flip side of this is, you know, and, and you talk about this in the chapter on capitalism, one of the 13 genes of the American DNA is capitalism and entrepreneurship. But at the same time, you talk about the role of Theodore Roosevelt in regulating capitalism. Where again is the line between how much regulation of capitalism, where it helps capitalism or it doesn't help? There's no easy answer, but right now in the United States, you obviously have a lot of entrepreneurs who believe they can start a company, grow it, become wealthy and create a great service. So I don't think the government is overly regulating right now entrepreneurial activity. However, if you were to go to China today and you know try to start a new new company today, it might be more complicated than it was a year or two ago because China is now worried about the impact of some of these large technology companies. In effect, right now, we are in a race with China to figure out whose technology is going to dominate the world in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, for, for most of the last 10 years, American technology has really dominated uh, the world. So the companies I just mentioned earlier, they are used around the world and everywhere in the world. I mean, not, not China, but Facebook and Google um, and, and other kinds of American technology are used everywhere. Now China would like to have its technologies expand beyond China. So Tencent, Baidu, Ant Financial, Alibaba, TikTok, among others, are going to try to ex export that technology. And we're in a race with China to kind of figure out whose technology is going to be the dominant one in the, in the world. And that's going to be one of the great fights of the next 10, 15, 20 years. I see one of the problems we have, or one of the, one of the good things for on China's side is that they don't really have, uh, let's call it moral boundaries about their use of technology. So you, you have a chapter on genomics, for instance, this is maybe right. one of the greatest innovations that are going to affect the world in the next 20 years and disease and so on. We have various ethical boundaries around our use of genomics. China seems not to. Could this drastically increase their possibility of winning this race over the next few decades? Well, China has some boundaries as well. As you may know, uh, someone did something with uh, CRISPR technology with a baby in China, and that person was sanctioned, I think, uh, house arrest or in prison. But um, there's no doubt that, that China is probably, in my view at least, willing to um, develop technologies in ways that we probably are not going to be able to legally do in the United States because China uh, sees itself as in a different mission than maybe we do. Um, I think China has much more influence in the companies that it it has created than, than the United States government has in the companies that have been developed here. Um, I think over the next 10, 20, 30 years, the great race is going to be between the United States and China for economic and technological dominance. And that's going to be much greater than the fight we had with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Right. And so, so again, what do you see the outcome of that when we are so nervous around so many different issues involving technology. And you're right, the Chinese government is involved in their companies, but mostly they push them beyond these ethical qualms that seem to hold us back. Well, you know, look, the thing about this, for about a century and a half, Britain dominated the world. It's a tiny country in the North Sea of the globe not exactly the central uh, spot of the, of the globe, yet because they had better technology, a smaller population 
that that didn't didn't matter. They were able to rule England, um, rule India with twenty thousand soldiers at one point. And obviously, India is a gigantic country. Twenty thousand soldiers, all the British had there. So now that everybody has access to technology, I think population is going to mean much more. So and we've been ruling the world for about a hundred years. We've had better technology and other kinds of advantages. I think over the next hundred years, it's unlikely that we'll have the same dominance because China's got a population three times our size, and therefore they just have much more. They will have much more economic uh, clout, and they'll have a lot of technology uh, that we probably won't be able to, uh, to match as readily or as quickly in some cases. And what could be the effect on America from that? Well, uh, the United States has been the largest economy in the world since 1870. Um, I think probably in your lifetime and probably in my lifetime, China will not be the well, China will become the biggest economy in the world, which they would say is their rightful position because for much of organized history, China was the biggest economy in the world. It's so up until the, probably the 1700s, they were the biggest economy. They would just say they're regaining their rightful position as the biggest economy. The impact on the United States will be this: when you grew up um, and your parents grew up, uh, the United States had a dominant economic position in the world. Today, that, that, that's receding a bit, and therefore the lifestyles of people in the United States won't be, for everybody, quite as good as it was before. I would say the, the, the per capita growth, the per capita income probably won't grow at the same rate that it did many years ago. In the end, China will be a bigger economy and with greater wealth. They probably won't pass our per capita income for any time soon, but in the end, you know, we have much more competition than we'd had uh, after World War II. After World War II, you know, we were more than half the world's GDP. Now we're about 18%. So that was part one. The conversation continues in part two. More predictions about the future of America, given COVID and so on. We talk about how do we have heroes from American history given what we know now are the really bad things many people did. And David explains why he did not invest in Amazon. <laughs>